All right, so we're going to be continuing on in 1 Kings, and today we're reading from 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 17, verse 13, uh, 16. In the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab son of Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab son of Omri did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, son Abiram, and he set up the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from its brook and I have directed the ravines, the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So we went to Zarephath. When he came to this town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in my jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I do not have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a mug. And I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain in the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the women and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Thank you, Juliet. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Um, I want to tell you about um, a book that a friend of mine wrote that became Australian Christian Book of the Year two years ago. Um, it's called Being the Bad Guys. Um, and notice bad has been stamped over the top of the word good. Uh, we used to be the good guys, now we Christians are the bad guys. So let me uh, tell you, read some of the introduction. 
Only a few generations ago, Christianity was the good guy. The solution to what was bad, rather than being on the wrong side of the law, we were the law. Then something changed. Over the course of the 20th century, we became just one of the guys. One option among many, a voice to be considered, but not to be followed unquestioningly. But the problem is, that's not where we are now. The tide has shifted further increasingly Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer an option, it's a problem. Uh, It's come as a surprise, we're not sure how it happened, we don't like it and we don't feel like we deserve it, but we are the bad guys now. Okay, now have a chat to the person next to you, is that a fair assessment? So you've got to work out, is that right, is that wrong, or is it kind of? You know, you've got three options, we're going to vote in just a moment, right? Talk to the person next to you. Right, wrong, agree, disagree, or sort of right. <clears throat> okay, so, and there's not, no right or wrong answer here. You can, you, know, you can just throw your vote in and it doesn't matter. Um, all right, so who would say, no, that's not true? Okay, a few of us uh, think this is a wrong assessment. Who would say, yes, this is true, this is a good assessment? Okay, about half, and who would say, sort of? Okay, so you're all, most of you are in the sort of or yes um, category. Uh, at, at least is sort of true, isn't it? Uh, we've, surely those of us who are old enough have felt this shift. Uh, and I just want to say... If you feel our situation is bad, then spare a thought for Elijah uh, and the people of Israel in his days. Um, Because this book of 1 Kings starts with God at the centre of his people. So here, so look at this. How good are these pictures, these kings? Um, AI, right? Artificial intelligence allows me now to take whatever actor I want and cast them in the role. So there's David... Gives way to Solomon. Who recognises Solomon? Donald Sutherland, right? A young Donald Sutherland. You'll see why I've got Donald Sutherland in a moment. Um, but, um, but under David and Solomon, you know, as we started One Kings, God was at the centre. David loved God. Uh, you know, he wasn't perfect, but he loved God and he wanted God at the centre. He arranged for his son Solomon to build a temple for God. Uh, And when the temple's built, God's word and prayer are right at the heart of the nation. In the capital city, right in the capital is this beautiful temple. So geographically, God was at the centre. Politically, God was at the centre. Prophets and priests were held in high regard. They were very much part of the running of the kingdom of Israel. I won't sing the song again, but Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, right? anointed Solomon king. It was all together. But over a period of 60 years, God and his word and his servants, the prophets, are pushed out, pushed out of the center, pushed out to the edges, persecuted, to the point where they fear for their lives. I've got two questions for us. How did we get here and what hope is there? 
They're, they're the two questions we're wrestling with, although I feel like I've got way too much to say, but they're the t- that's, that's the questions in a nutshell. Uh, they're the questions faithful, godly Israelites were asking, but I hope you can see how relevant those questions are for us today. How did we get to where we are so that Christianity and God and His Word have been pushed to the edges? How did we get there? And what hope is there? So God's word, as always, is going to speak profoundly into our lives and our context uh, today. So how did we get here? Well, the answer is step by step. Uh, Two weeks ago, we heard how Solomon's heart became divided. Um, So if you want to follow along with me, chapter 11, uh, verse 4 just, uh, just follow on in your Bible. It's a, it's a great thing to do, um, or on your neighbour's Bible, even easier. Um, so, so, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, right? 700 wives, 300 concubines, and his heart was turned after other gods. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as his father David had been. It wasn't like Solomon set out to turn away from God, but just the influences in his life, his wives and so on, and his heart turned away from the true God. Then his son Rehoboam, who's played by Kiefer Sutherland, eh? Jack Bauer otherwise. Uh, Anyway, uh, he was oppressive in his leadership. Uh, So he, uh, he was a fierce leader. He kind of took on from Solomon, but he made things even harsher for the people of Israel. Uh, so, he, you know, there was a point at which, you know, there was, there was unrest amongst the workers, uh, and Rehoboam asked the wise council of elders, what should I do? And they said, look, just lighten the load, uh, and they will be yours for life. But he didn't like the, the advice of the elders, Uh, And he made the mistake of listening to his young mates who said, no, make life harder, make life tougher. So come over to chapter 12, verse 14. And he gives the advice, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. And at this part, at this time, the northern part of Israel rebel and they, and the kingdom is divided in two. Uh, and it's all part of God's judgment on Solomon and his son for turning away from God, for stop listening to God. But the nation of Israel is split into two. Judah and Benjamin is the southern kingdom. Israel and the ten tribes up there are the northern kingdom. And at this point, God appoints Jeroboam. So there he is. Uh, And I've chosen Tom Cruise to play Jeroboam because he's a likable guy, but he's a religious nutcase, right? Uh, And so perfect to play the role of Jeroboam. Um, So chapter 12, verse 27. So, So what happens is Jeroboam is paranoid, right? God's given him this northern kingdom But Jerusalem's still where the temple is located. And so he fears when they go down to the temple, their hearts are going to turn back to Rehoboam. 
Verse 27, if these people go to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they'll again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. Right, so God had given him the northern kingdom, but he just couldn't trust God. The circumstances just looked like they were, they were going to conspire against him. And so instead of trusting God and, and, and going with God's plan... He stopped listening to God and he listened to his own paranoid fears and doubts. And he set up two alternative places of worship, one in Bethel, which became like a capital city, and one in the north in Dan. Uh, And they could go down, the people of Israel, and and worship a golden calf there. Uh, And it was an abomination in the eyes of God. It really had taken the true worship of God and distorted it terribly. Jeroboam ruled for 22 years. So we're going to do a little bit of an overview here right now. Jeroboam ruled for 22 years. When he died, his dad continued the same false religion set up by his... So the son, like the father. They look similar, don't they? Very much look alike. But this is Nadab, uh, the son of Jeroboam. So chapter 15, verse 25... Chapter 15, yeah, chapter 15, come down there. Verse 25, Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa. He reigned over Israel for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father and committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. Then came Bashar, the brutal Uh, 24 years he reigned as king. Verse 29, as soon as he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all according to the word of the Lord given through his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Now, Elah, Bashar's son, like father, like son again, for two years he ruled, He became drunk and then was overthrown by Zimri. Uh, Zimri had a brutal but fleeting reign over Israel. Seven days. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 11. Look at what happens. As soon as he began to reign and was seated on the throne, he killed off Basha's whole family. He did not spare a single male, whether relative or friend. So Zimri destroyed the whole house of Ashar. Uh, but then after, after Zimri came someone even worse, Omri. Twelve years Omri was king of Israel. Chapter 16, verse 25. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all of those before him. And then he dies and Ahab becomes king. And Ahab was even more evil than his dad. He reigned for 22 years. So pick it up uh, where, where Juliet uh, was with us. Um, verse 30. So chapter 16, verse 30. Ahab, son of Zimri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. That's saying something, isn't it? You think of all the brutality, the godlessness, and it just is spiralling downwards. 
Um, more, he married Jezebel. So here's Jezebel. Uh, and notice, I don't know if you can re- notice that reference, uh, uh, cultural reference. If you don't work it out, talk to the person next to you at the end of the service tonight. Uh, but there, I'll give you a hint. From the Harry Potter movies, there are two very evil villains, uh, and they look a lot like uh, these two. All right. Um, so he marries Jezebel, daughter of Eth Baal, king of the Sidonians, and he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. And you think, what has happened here? So we've gone over the period of about 60 years, we've gone from the heights of Solomon dedicating the temple, uh, a place for the God of Israel, the God of the whole world. And within about a period of about 60 years, Ahab sets up a temple in Samaria for worship of Baal, the fertility god of the Sidonians, a false god. And, and the nation has just spiralled into godlessness over, over a very short period of time as generation after generation failed to hear the word of God. And they pushed God and his word and God's followers out of the centre, uh, out, out to the distant edges of Israelite society. And as I say, sadly, we have something, we've seen something similar over the last 60 years here in Australia. Nowhere near as extreme or in your face, but we've gone from a nation who identified very clearly as Christian 60 years ago to a nation where Christianity is now in the minority, to a nation where God's word was once revered, but now it's treated with suspicion. Uh, Once it formed the basis of our institutions and the values of our nation, but now it is either ignored or despised completely. I feel like I'm fading in and out. I know I am, but the sound guys are very clever and they've got me under their control. Um, Now, as you see that drift in our society, I just want to flag two things. One is... No, no one of us can stop that drift happening. Right? There are cultural forces and stuff going on that you as an individual cannot stop. Um, uh, you, you cannot, as an individual, you can't change the course of our culture and the shift, but you can take responsibility for your own life. And you, you can say... What part is God's word going to have in my life? Uh, And if you don't think carefully about this, you will just go with the flow. And that drift away from God and his word will become part of your life. And so there's kind of a a responsibility on each of us to go to say, where will God feature in my life? Will I push him to the edges like the rest of society is doing? Or will I keep God central? And what does it mean for God to be central in your life? What does it mean for your habits, for your weekly routine, uh, for your daily patterns of life? How is it that you can fight the drift to keep God at the centre? And each of us kind of need to take responsibility 
for that in our own lives. So that's the first thing. Don't let this happen to you. But secondly, don't despair. Right? I can see some of you are looking a bit mournful, uh, a bit sad. Now, maybe that's just how you came into church uh, today. Uh, but I want to say there is great reason for hope and optimism. There is great reason for hope and optimism, even as we see all this happen. Uh, and that was true for Israel 3,000 years ago. It's true very much for us today. Right? So my, my, my hope is you'll go away sober-minded as you leave, but also with a, a hope and a joy and an optimism. So the second question, what hope is there? Well, the first hope is that God cannot and will not be silenced. Right? And God is more powerful than the forces of evil, and he will not be silenced. And I just want to put up some references on the screen. Have a look at those references, right? What do you think they all have in common? You're welcome to look at one of them, uh, see if you can work out a pattern. But there's lots of references. What do, what do you want to guess these references have in common? The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, right? That little phrase, the word of the Lord, it comes up in this section basically more than it does in the rest of the Bible. So this is a time when God and his word are being pushed to the edges and yet the word of the Lord is still driving the events of these chapters. God will not be silenced uh, and the course of history is shaped more by God and his word than by the forces of evil. Uh, and so God keeps on raising up prophets, courageous prophets like Elijah, who will speak God's word even against the flow and the grain of society. And God's word continues to go out today. Uh, and it's interesting, my mum will reflect over the course of her life and she would, she would agree with the drift away from Christianity and away from God's word, but she would say that there is more access to good, constructive teaching of God's word, there's more vitality in the teaching of God's word today than she ever remembers uh, growing up as a young girl. And, and so you see that pattern going on, isn't it? God's being pushed to the edges and yet God's word is still going out, uh, even in a secular place like Australia. And you're all gathered here today. What a blessing that is. Uh, and, so, and what we need to do is pray that God continues to give us courage to speak, trust in his powerful word, even as it's being pushed to the edges. It is the hope of the world, God's word. Uh, it's just our world doesn't know it. Uh, and they need to know it. All right, so what hope? God cannot be silenced by evil. But secondly, God will judge the forces of evil. And you see that in these chapters. Not only is God's word going out, but sometimes God's word of judgment, often God's word is a word of judgment in these chapters against these kings and against those who follow them. Um, and God keeps following through with the judgment. And so a little phrase keeps coming up in these chapters, according to the word of the Lord. 
And I put some of those passages up there. And what, what these chapters want to show us is even as this downward spiral is taking place from one king to another to another to another, even as the nation spirals into immorality and corruption and godlessness, God brings about his judgment. God rules, even during this time. Uh, and, so, and we heard about Elijah announcing to the king the famine uh, at the start of chapter 17. But again, if we've been reading closely through 1 Kings, we know that the famine had been prophesied. So I'm going to show you 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 35. This is part of Solomon's prayer when he dedicated the temple. And he said, When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people Israel have sinned against you, and, and I'll read the rest of it in a, in a little while, but can you see what Solomon anticipated or prophesied when the people turned away from God, God would shut the heavens and there would be no rain. Uh, and that's what Elijah came to warn the people about, that God was bringing judgment according to his word on the land of Israel. And uh, if you were here at the meet night last night, Greg Mason, uh, one of our members of church, he's a, he's a cattle farmer uh, on the side uh, and it's lovely hearing uh, his story. But um, a, a few years ago, I think it was early COVID, there was quite a bad drought up uh, in the region of Dungog, uh, where he farms his uh, cows. And, uh, and, and this, this spring of water that he was told would never dry up, dried up. Uh, and he had to ship in water every second day, I think he was saying. Was this right or... It was just an extraordinary amount of water he had to ship in. Now, you, you couldn't do that in ancient Israel. But, but his cattle were just getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. Uh, this is what has come on Israel as the judgment of God for the godlessness uh, of his people. Um, God will judge evil sooner or later. But you might ask the question, well, why the delay why doesn't God act more decisively? Bring on to the third point, and that is God gives every opportunity for people to repent and be forgiven. God is a reluctant judge. Uh, and I'm not saying that God, when he reluctantly judges, he is right and righteous in his judgment, but he is slow in his judgment. Uh, and so... Have a look at 1 Kings chapter 8. Again, this is Solomon at the dedication of the temple. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land that you gave your people as an inheritance. See, this is as God sends out prophets like Elijah, they speak a word of judgment, but the word of judgment is also an opportunity for repentance. And God's heart is that he, he wants people to turn back to him, to repent and to receive forgiveness. And, and while we breathe, there is always the opportunity to repent. And God is all, always so quick to forgive because he is a compassionate God. 
And, and uh, we're told this in the New Testament as well, about the time in which we live. Uh, to Peter, I want, you, I, want to, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The time we are living in now is an opportunity for our world to hear the gospel of Jesus. And in the gospel of Jesus, they will hear a warning of judgment that judgment is coming. The resurrection guarantees that a day of judgment is coming for all people. So the gospel is, on, on the one hand, a word of judgment, and I think this is why so many people despise the gospel, because it is calling them to account for the lives that they have lived. But the gospel is not merely a word of judgment. It is an opportunity for salvation and forgiveness. Uh, this is the time we live where God is delaying the judgment, wanting his word to go out so that people can turn and receive forgiveness and love and hope through the Lord Jesus. And so come on to the fourth point. Where, what hope is there? God works in surprising ways, often on the edges uh, and so here is my Elijah. What do you reckon? <laughs> Elijah, the prophet. There should be a wanted kind of sign above him. Uh, in chapter 17, verse 1, we're told, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. Now, we don't know a lot about Tishbe. Uh, we do know about Gilead. So let me try to show you Gilead on a map. So Gilead's kind of on the eastern edge. You have to cross the Jordan River. So it's the eastern kind of land of Israel. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Elijah, God raises up this prophet from the edges uh, of Israel. If, pe if, God, if people push God out from the centre, God will work on the edges. Uh, and he, he loves doing it. We're told later Elijah was a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist, but that doesn't matter for the time being. It will matter in a moment. Um, he prophesies the drought and then God sends him away because his life is in danger. Jezebel uh, wants to kill him and so does Ahab. So God sends him to a little brook east of the Jordan River, somewhere around Gilead in the wilderness uh, is where Elijah is hiding uh, and this little brook supplies water in the midst of the drought and God sends ravens who bring bread and meat morning and night, morning and night, day after day. It's, um, it's not like food at the king's table. Uh, you know, it's, 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 not, you know, it's not a massive feast like we had last night at the men's night, but God provides for his prophet. It's a surprising way to provide though, isn't it? A raven was an unclean animal. And yet God uses this means to provide for his prophet in the midst of the severe famine. But as the drought takes hold, the brook dries up. 
Uh, and, and this is the pattern of life in our world, isn't it? That even God's people feel the effects of God's judgment uh, on a humanity that has turned the backs, their backs on him. We feel the grief and impact of sin. Uh, but God will still protect us and provide for us in the midst of it. So verse 7, Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So God sends Elijah away again, this time beyond the land of Israel, into the land of Sidon. And you might notice Zarephath, right, right up there. He sends him away. This is the land of Baal. This is the, the, the people worshipped Baal up there. Why is God sending Elijah there? Well, on the one hand, he's, he's protecting Elijah from the persecution of Jezebel and Ahab. But why the land of Baal beyond the borders of Israel? Whatever the reason, God had arranged for this non-Israelite widow to care for Elijah and to give him food. God says to Elijah, I've got it all arranged for you, just go to Zarephath. So Elijah locates the widow and look at her reaction. So this is chapter 17, verse 12. <laughs> um, he goes up to this widow and she says, As surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. And I've only got a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now that would be an anticlimax, wouldn't it, if you're Elijah? You go, God's going to provide for me. And here is this woman who's starving to death. And she's about to die herself. Um, and, and there's so much going on here. So Baal, the god of that region supposedly, he was the god of fertility and rain. But he hadn't been able to stop the drought uh, in that part of the world. But this widow seems the least likely person to provide for Elijah. And yet by the power of God, her little jar of flour, her jug of oil kept filling up. Day after day after day. Verse 15. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family, for the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil didn't run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Elijah. Um, what a blessing, isn't it? The, the way God... While all this is going on, it's a beautiful setup that Haley said earlier, isn't it? While all this is going on with the kings at the centre in Jerusalem, God is still caring for this widow and her son. And he will even bring the son back from the dead uh, through, the, through the work of Elijah the prophet. Now we're going to hear more about Elijah in the weeks to come. But at the end of the Old Testament, God promised to send Elijah once more. Uh, at the end of the age, when God would establish his kingdom, there would be a forerunner, the prophet Elijah. And sure enough, 900 years later, Elijah, the new Elijah, steps on the scene. Have a look at who I've cast as the new Elijah. Oh, same one? Uh, very similar, right? Very similar. Uh, and that's the point, right? There's a whole lot of similarities. He's there. 
by the Jordan River in the wilderness. Uh, it wasn't ravens feeding him, but he's eating kind of locusts and honey. Um, he too was a prophet. He too was declaring the judgment of God, the Messiah is coming, the kingdom of God is breaking in. He was calling on the people to repent. Like Elijah, he was opposed by an evil king and queen. Who have I cast as them? Herod and Herodias. Notice similarities, right? Uh, like eerily similar, isn't it? Um, in fact, Herod and Herodias conspired to kill John the Baptist. The king presented John's head on a platter to his queen. Uh, and I just, I just want to say, this is the pattern throughout history. God works in surprising ways, ways that you don't expect. He, he loves to work from the edges. So when, the, when God's Messiah came, the Lord Jesus, he grew up in Nazareth. And even one of his followers said, Nazareth? Like, what good can come from Nazareth? It's like, I don't know what it's like. I don't want to be insulting, but, you know, um, far north Queensland town, Atherton, right? What good can come from Atherton? Oh, anyone? Oh, sorry, Christina, yeah. And there are good things, right? There are good things. Um, all right, sorry, sister. Well, my goodness. Anyway, but this is the whole point, because Nazareth was honoured by God, right? Just, just as Atherton could be. Um, okay, um, so, so Jesus comes from Nazareth in the north, as far as you can get from Jerusalem. And those at the centre... The political, the religious leaders, they crucified him. They scourged him. They mocked him, humiliated him so publicly, hung him on a cross in disgrace, utterly humiliated before the watching world. That's what the central agency of Israel did. The, the kings, the religious leaders conspired together. But listen to these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God loves to use apparent weakness to display his power. Uh, and it's through Jesus' death on the cross that forgiveness and salvation would come to the world. Have a look a few verses later. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. As our society pushes God to the edges as people shut their ears to God and his word, as our political influence declines and we feel the rise of persecution, we are precisely in the place that God so often uses to display his power uh, and to bring about his good purposes. Now, I want to give you an example of how we've seen this uh, in recent days. 
Uh, I want to tell you about the Anglican Church. I was once an Anglican minister, surprisingly. Like, it, it, anyway, that was another quirk of history that, uh, that happened. But uh, the Anglican Church came out of the Church of England, right? So that's, the Anglican Church is the Church of England. Um, Anglicans worldwide have looked to the Archbishop of Canterbury as their leader for, for centuries, the Archbishop of Canterbury was the one who placed the crown on the king's head. That's the last coronation. I don't need another coronation reference particularly. But, uh, so the Archbishop of Canterbury, he's the one who placed the crown on the king's head a few weeks ago. But here is the thing. The centre of the Church of England, the centre of Anglicanism, has stopped listening to the Word of God. In recent decades... God has been pushed to the, to the edges. Uh, and there's a, there's a massive loss of confidence in the Word of God and the Bible amongst the central leaders of the Anglican Church. And yet, surprisingly, the vast majority of Anglicans throughout the world no longer live in England. Uh, it's almost like God's worked on the edges and now most Anglicans throughout the world, well, they don't live in Australia or America either. They live in Africa. They live in Southeast Asia. Uh, and where else, Alan Wood? South America. South America, yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it, that um, God's pushed out of the centre and he works on the edges amongst the colonies, amongst those once regarded as savages by the centre, by the empire, uh, and yet God is doing this wonderful, amazing work. Um, and in the days leading up to the king's coronation, so many Anglicans from these regions, from Africa, th- these, 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 are not all, these are the leaders and the bishops and, of, uh, of, the, of churches throughout Africa, Anglican church throughout Africa, South America, some from Australia... Southeast Asia, they met in Rwanda, Africa, and they declared to the Archbishop of Canterbury, we no longer recognise your leadership over the Anglican Church uh, because you have despised the word of God uh, and we cannot sit under your leadership any longer. And you think, wow, what an amazing thing to take place. Uh, And I imagine those in the centre... You know, Archbishop of Canada, probably thinking, you just can't do that. And they're saying, well, we have. Um, And if you want to know more, talk to Alan Wood. He was there. Can you see him in the crowd? Right. He's he's one of those who were there because Alan and Helen used to serve amongst faithful, godly Anglicans in Nigeria and then in Indonesia again. And so Alan went in kind of support. Uh, of his brothers and sisters that, he's, that he and Helen have worked among for so many years. But when God is pushed out of the centre, God delights on working in working on the edges. So brothers and sisters, it does feel like we've become the bad guys, trying to live for Jesus in a world that says you shouldn't. But don't despair. God cannot be silenced. And that's still the case. God will judge evil... God gives every opportunity to repent and be forgiven. That's the time in which we live now. Fourthly, God works in surprising ways, 
often on the edges. Right? So be of good cheer. Um, I, I just want to um, I, I read you a few bits from this book and then I'll, I'll, I'll conclude. Have we, have we got time? Probably haven't got time, but let me give you two or three minutes. So these, these are some conclusions to Steve's book, right, Steve McAlpine. Um, he says, what do we do in the midst of all of this? His last chapter. If we look back in 30 years' time and ask what basic strategy has been most successful in staying the hand of secular culture, I'm convinced that the sheer simplicity of committing to meet with God's people will win hands down. The church is the New Testament temple of God and we neglect this building project at our peril. Preferencing God's people is a simple strategy, yet it is often beyond us. We live in a time when everyone is rushing off to their own panelled houses and personal improvement projects. Modern life, with its virtual technologies and physical mobility, enables and encourages this. Christians are not immune. So he says, preference God's people, but it will cost you. It will cost you in your priorities and uh, it, it will cost you. He says this, whatever the near future holds... Churches that have neglected the deepest need of the Christian community, that is, to get to know Jesus better and allow him to reshape our identity as the people of God, churches that have neglected that need will eventually cave in to a hostile culture and follow the path of least resistance. We see this happening already in the area of sexual ethics. In three decades' times. In three decades' time, he, he gives a prediction, churches that have not placed the proclamation of King Jesus front and centre will either be in decline or they will have closed. We must not be swayed by hostility. After all, Jesus himself was more than familiar with hostility. When Jesus and his goodness are proclaimed in our buildings, it will seep into the rest of our lives. His name will be spoken around our dinner tables and in our workplaces he will be shown to be our hope, our very public hope, even as secular hostility arises. The world is happy to have spiritual belief as a privatised side dish. Let's encourage each other to reinvest our everyday language with Jesus' talk and to speak of him as if he matters in our real world. He says, I cannot, re I cannot recommend highly enough committing to a small group of fellow disciples who can support and guide you as you navigate this increasingly hostile public life. Self-examination is one thing, examination by others is another thing altogether. Form a group of fellow Christian workers from your church uh, where you can explore the principles that you will abide by when the pressure comes. He says, for each other, you've got a unique opportunity. So he says, your pastor doesn't know the pressures firsthand that you have as you go out into the workplace. So gather together. Support one another in it. Pray for one another. Strategize. How can you live faithfully as God's people in a world that is increasingly hostile? There's so much more I could say, but let me, um, let me just show you the, the last paragraph. We worship a God who delights in reversing roles, lifting up the humble bringing down the proud, filling the empty and sending the full away empty-handed. We look to the God who will one day welcome us with love and joy. 
We wait for the day when he will say to those whom the world said were the bad guys, God will say, well done, good and faithful servants. And that is a good ending. I'll lead us in prayer. God, our Father, we do grieve as we consider the godlessness of our, our world and the society in which we live, the way whether through ignorance or defiance, people have pushed you out of the centre in their lives and out of the centre of our society. Uh, Father, we pray that you'll have mercy on our land, uh, on our region. Father, we pray firstly in our own lives that you will be at the centre for us. Please forgive us our sin through the Lord Jesus. Uh, Please turn our hearts towards you again and again. Don't let us be caught up with the flow and the drift and the godlessness of this society in which we live. Father, we pray that we will remain true, uh, constantly turning to you uh, and your son Jesus. And Father, in this time, we thank you that there is great reason for hope. Please continue to send your word out into our society. Please continue to judge evil, both now and on the last day. Father, please continue to turn many hearts towards yourself to receive forgiveness and, uh, and mercy. And Father, we pray that we'll be gripped by the urgency of that task, uh, that that is why you are delaying your judgment. And please use us, even though we feel small and insignificant on the big scale, Please use even us and this church for your mighty purposes throughout the world. And we pray that you'll bring us safely to that day when you'll declare, and we want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servants. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.